Please turn in your Bible to Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, and we'll be reading verses 9 through 20. Paul's epistle to the Romans, chapter 3, verses 9 through 20. Let's give careful attention now to God's holy word, beginning in verse 9. What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. Their throat is an open tomb. With their tongues they have practiced deceit. The poison of asps is under their lips, whose mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways, and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now we know that whatever the law says, it says to those who are under the law, that every mouth may be stopped and all the world may become guilty before God. Therefore, by the deeds of the law, no flesh will be justified in His sight. For by the law is the knowledge of sin. May the Lord bless this reading of His Word to us this morning. Amen. Seeking the Lord's help and blessing this morning, let's turn back to Romans chapter 3, focusing our attention upon verses 15 through 18. As the Apostle Paul continues quoting the Old Testament Scripture passages that in his mind are most relevant to this question of the nature of fallen humanity, the sinfulness of fallen humanity, the unrighteousness, the depravity, and the need of fallen humanity to find salvation through the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He's showing how by nature we're all disqualified and found guilty in the sight of God, disqualified for heaven and made liable to the wrath of God in hell. And up to this point, he's spoken in general terms that no one has righteous conduct, no one in terms of their thinking understands in a saving way, in a true and full-fledged way, understands God his law, his gospel. No one seeks after God. They turn aside to various unprofitable things. No one does what is truly good from the heart. And that's seen because out of the heart, the mouth speaks. Their throat is an open tomb. Filthy speech, deceptive speech, poisonous and bitter and violent speech. Their mouth is full of cursing and bitterness. And up to this point, 
you say, well, it's all talk. It's all talk. But Paul takes it to the next level and shows what this depravity brings about in the human lifestyle and in human culture. Verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways. And the way of peace they have not known. Why are all these things the case? Individually, corporately, because, verse 18, there is no fear of God before their eyes. When people don't take God seriously, it doesn't simply mean that they don't follow a certain code of conduct and they don't have the right motives and they occasionally say things that hurt our feelings. They murder. They shed blood. Their feet are swift to shed blood. And in the wake of their ungodliness, there is misery and destruction. Misery and destruction for them. Misery and destruction for those around them. As blood is shed. As people's lives are destroyed. As people become more and more miserable. And that peace that everyone desires, peace of mind, peace with our circumstances, peace with God, peace with other people. They don't even know the way, let alone experience that peace. Why? Because there's no fear of God before their eyes. So the rubber meets the road. It's not just some kind of airy-fairy, intellectual, ideological discussion of whose religion, whose code of conduct. We're talking about people are being slaughtered. People's lives are destroyed as a result of human sinfulness and the absence of the fear of God in the human heart and in human society. Their feet are swift to shed blood. Destruction and misery are in their ways and the way of peace they have not known. There is no fear of God before their eyes. Now, every human being on planet Earth, every human being that has ever lived has been created by God to live forever. Created by God to have everlasting conscious existence. And that existence in two main stages. Stage one is the journey. Stage two is the destination. We refer to these two stages in a number of different ways. We speak of this life and the life to come. We speak of the here and the hereafter. The present age and the age to come or the world to come. Sometimes we speak, although not with philosophical or theological precision, of time and eternity. Two main stages. You and I are going to be in conscious, everlasting existence in two main stages. It's unavoidable. There's the journey and there's the destination. And the first of these two stages, that is the journey, obviously begins here on earth. It began at your conception in the womb of your mother. The journey began here on earth. And this first stage may then be reduced further to two distinct paths leading to two distinct destinations. So we're all on the journey. Here we are, we're on the journey, 
But within this journey here on earth, there are two distinct paths leading to two distinct destinations. There is, first of all, the path of the repentant, believing, converted sinner. We all come into this world conceived and born in sin, but some sinners at this moment, up to this point on their journey, they have been saved by the Spirit of God who regenerated their hearts. They were born again. They believed on Christ. Christ's finished work at the cross was applied to them. Their sins were forgiven. They were constituted as righteous in the sight of God, made acceptable to God through His beloved Son, given new life through Christ's resurrection, and they're on the the path that leads to heaven. Secondly, there is the path of the unrepentant, unbelieving, unconverted sinner. They're still in the same natural condition into which they were conceived and born. In other words, they're still under the dominion of sin. They're still in unbelief. They haven't repented of their sin, turned to Christ in faith, received salvation through Him and Him alone. In other words, they haven't been converted. And there is this second path, the path of that type of sinner, and that path leads to hell. And there's no third path, and there's no third destination. The Lord Jesus Christ makes this abundantly clear in Matthew chapter 7 in the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 7, 13, and 14. Now, there are many people in our society who say, I'm not sure about the Apostle Paul. I'm not sure about uh, everything that's contained in the New Testament or in the 66 books of the Bible. Not sure about Moses. Not sure about Paul. But the Sermon on the Mount, I believe that. Half the time, you can even get a Republican presidential candidate to agree with the Sermon on the Mount. So, but, but here's the, the fact of the matter is, this is the Sermon on the Mount. So, listen to what Jesus says in this sermon that so many think is, is so palatable to the modern ear. And yet He says, Matthew seven thirteen, Enter by the narrow gate. For wide is the gate and broad is the way that leads to destruction. And there are many who go in by it. Because narrow is the gate and difficult is the way which leads to life. And there are few who find it. So you can see here there are two gates, two paths, and two destinations. There is no third gate. Uh, The the, the gate to the Broadway is is the, the womb. Right? You, you're, you're, conceived, you're born into the broad way. Many are on it. Most people are on it. And the narrow way is such that you're born again. Through the womb of spiritual regeneration, you're brought forth by the word of truth onto the narrow way that leads to life. But there are only two gates, two paths, and two destinations. Jesus throughout His ministry, is always seeking to make this point clear. John 3, verse 36. He who believes in the Son has everlasting life, and he who does not believe in the Son shall not see life. But the wrath of God abides on him. Two paths. Two destinations. 
You either believe in the Son and you have everlasting life, or you don't believe and you can't see life. You shall not see life, but the wrath of God abides upon you. John 5, verse 24, most assuredly, again, he knows there are going to be people that are going to be trying to invent third option. Most assuredly, verily, verily, he says, I say to you, he who hears my word and believes in him who sent me has everlasting life and shall not come into judgment, but has passed from death into life. Two options, death, life, life, death. It's life or death, as they say, but there's no third option. You know, mostly dead or something, as they say. No, there's no third option. Most assuredly, I say to you, the hour is coming and now is when the dead will hear the voice of the Son of God and those who hear will live. Speaking of the gospel, converting people from death to life. Verse 28, do not marvel at this for the hour is coming in which all who are in the graves will hear his voice and come forth. Notice the two options. Those who have done good to the resurrection of life and those who have done evil to the resurrection of condemnation. So there are only two paths leading to two destinations. There's the saved sinner who is justified through Christ and enabled to do good works, even zealous for good works. Paul says in our natural state, we can do nothing that is good. But there is the path to heaven where the sanctified believer is able to do good and that is the path to the resurrection of life. But there are those who have done evil, whose evil has not been forgiven and whose life has not been sanctified and they're on their way to the resurrection of condemnation. Notice that eternal life, as the Bible uses it, means more than just living forever with a conscious existence. Eternal life is something more than just being consciously awake and aware for all eternity. Both the righteous and the wicked will be consciously aware for all eternity. Both will be raised up physically and bodily at the last day when Christ returns. Some to spend that eternal, everlasting consciousness in blessed uh, bliss and joy in heaven in the presence of Christ, and some to experience eternal conscious torment. So both have everlasting life in the sense of consciousness, but only one has everlasting life as opposed to an everlasting conscious death. That's what hell is. It's an everlasting experience, consciously speaking, of spiritual death and separation from God. But there are only two options. The Apostle John, again, we, we have to make this clear. 1 John 5.12, he says, He who has the Son has life. He who does not have the Son of God does not have life. These things I've written to you who believe in the name of the Son of God that you may know that you have eternal life and that you may continue to believe in the name of the Son of God. Now, notice that those who are on the path to hell currently have the wrath of God abiding on them, and those who are on the path to heaven presently possess eternal life. Whatever, the, whatever these things are, whatever heaven is and whatever hell is, by contrast, these are things that in principle are presently possessed 
by those on these respective paths. In principle, each of these two paths, the path to heaven and the path to hell, increasingly reflects the character of its final destination. Let me say that again. In principle, each of these two paths increasingly reflects the character of its final destination. And so the path to heaven increasingly manifests heaven on earth for the believer. This is true for individuals. Proverbs 4.18 in describing the life of one who is on the path to heaven, who is a repentant believer. Proverbs 4.18 But the path of the just is like the shining sun that shines ever brighter until the perfect day. The way of the wicked is like darkness. They do not know what makes them stumble. So you see, the path that you're on increasingly in this life reflects the destination. For the believer, the one who is on the path to heaven, it's like the shining sun, shining brighter and brighter until you shine like the sun in the kingdom of your heavenly Father. But for the wicked, their way is increasingly dark. Their way reflects the outer darkness to which they're heading. And so, we see this throughout the Scriptures. But focusing here, especially on the path to heaven and and how it manifests heaven on earth for the repentant believer, notice what Jesus says in John 17.3. He says, This is eternal life, that they may know You the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. That's not something that is merely true in the destination, in the hereafter. That is true for the believer now. We have that kind of eternal life in principle because we know God. We know our Heavenly Father. We know the One whom we have believed. We know Jesus Christ. We see Him though by faith and through a glass darkly. Yet in principle, we know God in the person of Jesus Christ. We know, we know, we experience, we believe, we have assurance. And that knowledge of God is a foretaste of heaven. Because that's what heaven is. It's just a more clear perception, a more clear understanding and appreciation and assurance of God's love and presence. It's heaven in seed form. And that's why John says he's writing so that those who believe on Christ can know that they have eternal life. How? By examining their life now to see in principle the seeds of heaven in their life. Loving the brethren with whom they'll spend eternity in heaven. Believing on Christ. Obeying His Word. Being conformed. Purifying themselves as He is pure. Even as they'll be perfectly made holy in the life to come. It's also true for believers corporately. That this path to heaven reflects increasingly the character of our final destination. You see this especially in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 14. Paul prays for the Ephesians and their walk with Christ in this life, in this world, on this journey. He talks about the whole family in heaven and earth. And he's interceding here for the saints on earth. 
in that prayer, he says, verse 17, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. He's talking about your Christian life, dear believer, in this world. He says there's no glass ceiling on it. You can have intimate communion. Earlier he says the Spirit strengthens you with might in the inner man. You haven't received your resurrected body in in power and spirituality and all of these things, but you can be strengthened with might in the inner man by the Spirit. And you with all the saints can be rooted and grounded in a love, in a unity. And you can perceive and comprehend with those saints the infinite dimensions of the love of Christ which surpasses our knowledge. And you can be filled with all the fullness of God. And so, these are things we associate with heaven. But he's saying increasingly on your path to heaven, heaven is in you before you are in heaven. As is said of the Puritan Richard Sibbs. Or as Jesus says, we're to pray that as His kingdom manifests itself on earth, that His will would be done in earth as it is in heaven. And so, corporately, the more God's people are sanctified and the more of God's people who are being sanctified that there are in the world, increasingly, as more people are converted, as the nations are discipled, in our call to worship, we're told that as many people come to the house of the Lord. As in the latter days, many are converted. Even the nations of the world will be converted and Christ will disciple them and rebuke them and train them so that they beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Look at what the world could be. The more people are saved, the more people, the more nations that that are, as it were, following this path to heaven. The more kings that are, as the book of Revelation says, bringing their glory into that heavenly city, the more even the earth corporately can reflect uh, heaven to come. And yet it's paradoxical for believers. The fact that this journey reflects heaven is paradoxical when you consider the circumstance that as with the Lord Jesus Christ, we are to follow a path of suffering unto glory. Uh, you can see that just the, the paradoxical nature of this in, in certain Old Testament passages. For instance, Psalm 84.6 where it says that this veil of tears is as a spring and a shower of blessing. It's a veil of tears. And yet those tears... The Lord so works together for our good that it becomes a source of blessing and encouragement. Hosea 2.15 The valley of Achor, that is the valley of trouble, is a door of hope. And so, difficult times in the Christian life, difficult providences, chastisements even, persecution even, is a door of hope for the future. 1 Peter one. Verse 6 says, In this you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while, if need be, you have been grieved by various trials. 
So in a season of trial, he says, yet you're rejoicing, greatly rejoicing. Verse 7, that the genuineness of your faith being much more precious than gold that perishes, though it be tested by fire, may be found to praise, honor, and glory at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Whom having not seen, you don't see Jesus, you walk by faith. Everything you see around you at times is discouraging, disheartening, despised and rejected by the world. Haven't seen Him, but you love Him, though now you do not see Him, yet believing you rejoice with joy inexpressible and full of glory. What a paradox. These two seemingly contradictory things, and yet they're brought together, they're not contradictory at all. We think of heaven as joy inexpressible and full of glory. Peter says these saints are experiencing that on earth in their most trying experiences, their most trying seasons of life. We could go on. Uh, Paul, 2 Corinthians 12.10 said he rejoiced in his infirmities because when he was weak, the Lord made him strong and the power of Christ rested upon him. And so... For the believer, the path to heaven increasingly manifests, even though it's paradoxical, it increasingly manifests both individually and corporately heaven on earth. But it's also true that the path to hell increasingly manifests hell on earth. The path to hell, the person who is not right with God through personal faith in the Lord Jesus Christ, We're told that such a person in Ephesians 2.12, speaking of the Ephesians before their conversion, so it applies to anyone who's not yet converted, who has not yet repented and believed and entered the narrow gate on the path to heaven. He says, at that time, you were without Christ, being aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. Now, now that's true of the Ephesian Gentiles. They're outside the covenant community and they're without Christ in any sense. But do you realize that in principle, you can be like the Jews because later he says Jesus came to preach peace to those who are near and those who are far off. So these things apply in a sense even to those who are members of the visible church. If you're a member of the visible church, Even you profess faith and come to the table, but you're a member of the visible church. Maybe you're baptized, you haven't professed faith, or maybe you do come to the table. But the point is, even though you're a member of the visible church, if you're not born again, like Nicodemus was not born again, if that's you, then inwardly you are an alien and a stranger to the church. You're in the church, but not of the church, in the same way that the believers are in the world, but not of the world. You can be in the church and still, in principle, inwardly be an alien to the commonwealth of Israel and a stranger from the covenants of promise. You can be outwardly with Lot's wife on the road to deliverance and inwardly still be in Sodom on the path to destruction. So understand that. But he says that those who are unconverted on the path to hell, not only do they not have Christ, not only are they aliens and strangers from God's covenant people, but having no hope 
and without God in the world. Just as those passages that Paul and Peter used to express those aspects of the Christian life that seem to be pointing to heaven, but they're pointing to the here and now, even so, Paul's description of the here and now for the unconverted person, it just seems to be describing hell. To be without Christ. I never knew you. Depart from me, worker of iniquity. Without Christ in hell. Aliens, strangers from the covenants of promise. The rich man in the parable cries out across the chasm to to Father Abraham. He's a covenant member, but he's now estranged. While the sons of the kingdom are cast out, Jesus says, but all the while those from the east and the west sit down in Abraham's bosom with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and the prophets. Without Christ, aliens from the commonwealth of the true Israel and from the covenant of promise. Having no hope. That's the worst part of hell. If hell were nothing more than a toothache that you knew would never go away. Just a migraine headache. Now, I know to say just a migraine headache, but compared to a lake of fire and brimstone, just a a migraine headache that would never go away as you remain either in solitude or surrounded by angry, feisty people that drive you up the wall, whatever hell is like. But the point is, you're there forever with no hope of ever escaping. Never going to get out. Even if there were none of that and you were just in a room in solitary confinement knowing that after millions of millions and billions of years you had not been in hell even one-tenth of one percent of the time that you're going to be there. It never ends. Uh, was, it, um, was it Milton that, uh, of course, he, he had some theological problems, but Milton in Paradise Lost, I think he, he portrayed hell as, as having a banner as people were entering that says, abandon all hope here. Having no hope. That's hell. But you see, in principle, insofar as you reject Christ and you remain on the path to hell in this world, there is no hope for you. There's no hope for you outside of Jesus Christ. Having no hope and without God in the world. You were created to know God, to love God, to experience and receive His love. You were created to have the the eternity in your heart filled with all the fullness of the eternal God who made you. Having no hope and without God in the world. Those who are without God in eternity are without God in the world right now. Their heart is as a microcosm of hell itself right now. The absence of God, dear unbeliever, from your heart right now is is a foreshadowing, a foretaste of the bitter loneliness and abandonment of hell without God in the world is a precursor to without God for eternity. The path to hell increasingly manifests hell on earth as Ephesians 4.18 
alienated from the life of God. Alienated from the life of God. True in hell, yes. But for the unconverted, he's talking about people here and now on their journey to hell. Alienated from the life of God. Uh, You can, if you're interested in this, you can look at larger catechism question 28. What are the punishments of sin in this world? And the answer is this, the punishments of sin in this world are either inward, as blindness of mind, a reprobate sense, strong delusions, hardness of heart, horror of conscience, and vile affections. Something of hell in all of those things. Here, in this life, God judicially gives the unconverted person over as a child of wrath to a taste of these things in anticipation of the judgment to come. Or it says outward punishments as the curse of God upon the creatures for our sakes and all other evils that befall us in our bodies, names, estates, relations, and employments together with death itself. The the, the valley of tears for the unconverted is not a spring of blessing. The, uh, The valley of trouble is not a door of hope. It's the mountaintop. It's the mountaintop. The valley of tears and of trouble for the unbeliever in this world is the apex of their joy and happiness. And for all eternity, that valley of tears in this world with something of the goodness of God prevailing will will be something that they long for. The worst experience in this life will be the great desire of the unconverted in hell. If only I could get back to that lowest point in my earthly life. It's not a door of hope. It's, it's the apex of my life for all eternity. And this is true not only of individuals, but it's true corporately. And this is what Paul has been reminding us of again and again in the epistle to the Romans. Chapter 1 of Romans. At the end of the chapter, those who did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do those things which are not fitting. And Pandora's box was opened and unleashed, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife. See, and I want to emphasize not just the personal sins, but now we're talking about murder. Now we're talking about adultery. We're talking about people's lives being ruined. Sometimes we just don't, for whatever reason, we don't take sin seriously when it's just, oh, there's the covetous man. We should take it seriously. But Paul is saying, no, this is true corporately. The more that a nation or society uh, embraces the path to hell, the more it becomes hell on earth and people's lives are destroyed by maliciousness and envy and murder, inventors of evil things, disobedience to parents, homes are wrecked and ravaged, undiscerning, untrustworthy, people are deceived and destroyed, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, hell on earth. Imagine being surrounded by those that are unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful. And yet the Bible says that that's what 
unconverted humanity is like. That's where not only individuals, but families and societies, that's what they become on the path to hell. Titus chapter 3, verse 3, For we ourselves were also once foolish, disobedient, deceived, serving various lusts and pleasures. Now listen, living in malice and envy, hateful and hating one another. Who wants to live in a family or a society that is filled with hatefulness, hatred? I hate you, you hate me. There is no peace for the wicked corporately. And my friends, we see it in our text, do we not? Not only the cursing and bitterness and deception of the lips, but verse 15, their feet are swift to shed blood. In this text, Paul describes what happens to individuals and societies who choose to remain on the path to hell. Individuals and societies. By the way, it is paradoxical. We don't have time to get into that. It is paradoxical that the people on the way to hell seem to be the most comfortable. God is near to their mouth and yet far from their hearts, far from their minds. Jeremiah 12.2 But it's still true deep down. There is something of hell that increases in their hearts, though outwardly everything looks good. I remember sitting in the insurance office a number of years ago in uh, Pennsylvania, and I'd been working for the company for about a year, maybe a little less than a year, and uh, the person to whom I reported was a young man, probably in his late 20s or early 30s, You know, the world would say, here's a handsome man married to a a beautiful new bride. They just had a a, a child, and he was doing well for himself, making a lot of money. Uh, A really nice guy. People liked him. He he was very successful in his athletic career in in, uh, high school and college. Uh, He's got it all. And and as I said, uh, I mean, he's an unbeliever, but he was a good guy in many ways, outwardly speaking. People enjoyed, I enjoyed working for him and being around him. But I remember him all of a sudden coming out of his office, uh, talking on his cell phone, and he just sat down um, with his back against the wall that was right outside his office in the main office area, weeping profusely and talking to someone on the phone and then talking to those of us in the office, weeping profusely. He had just gotten a test result for a terminal debilitative disease. And he was weeping. And I will never forget that as he was weeping, that he said something. He said, I knew this was going to happen. I knew it was just too perfect. My wife, my, my, my child, everything was just too... I knew this was going to happen. My friends, it doesn't matter what we see outwardly. The unbeliever... And, and again, I have good, nothing but good feelings in a way for this man. But here's the fact of the matter. Whatever people may seem to be experiencing based on their outward prosperity, deep down in their soul, Paul says they know the judgment's coming. They know something's wrong. And when it comes on judgment day or in history through God's providence, it won't be as though it's a thing completely foreign to them. They'll admit it. Even a knee-jerk reaction, they'll admit it. I knew something. I knew this was going to happen. Uh, So it is paradoxical. They have everything, but deep down they know this increasing uh, phenomenon. 
Now, as I said, in our text, Paul describes what happens to individuals and societies who choose to remain on the path to hell. Hell on earth. Uh, And we see it in our text. Swift to shed blood. Look at our society on a grand scale. You have abortion on demand, children, babies in the womb being slaughtered. You have uh, almost uh, just exponential number of fertilized eggs, human beings in the womb that are being destroyed by pills, uh, certain types of contraceptives and pills and abortion pills, millions of abortions that are not even being reported because of that. So we're slaughtering, we're swift to shed the blood of the unborn. You look at our society, our culture, our nation in terms of imperialism. And the amount of bloodshed that takes place, the number of uh, de facto wars that our nation is engaged in, slaughtering people all over the world in jurisdictions that are far beyond the power of the sword that God has assigned to this nation. And we, we now go to war because of our national interest. We're killing people not out of defense of the lives of our citizens, but out of a defense for our financial supremacy, our superpower status, in defense of our standard of living and of our well-being. We're very much like Lamech in Genesis 4.23 who says, I'll kill a man for wounding me. That's the principle. Not I'll kill someone in self-defense, a defensive war, but I'm going to send soldiers to kill people for doing something less than threatening my life. And that's the norm. Uh, so much so, we swim in so much imperialism like a fish doesn't even understand that it's in the water. We just oftentimes assume that, that this is okay. This is not the historic Christian doctrine of just war theory. It's murder. It's murder. Anytime our military kills somebody and it's not a defensive war as defined by the Bible, it is murder. And it's outside the jurisdiction of the power of the sword that God has given to this nation to enforce laws and defend its citizens. Murder. It's murder. Swift to shed blood and how swift we are to do it. Not only that, domestically, the rise of violence and murder is off the charts. Rampant murders throughout our cities and communities. We see numerous other things, people dying pharmaceutical malpractice, so much more could be said. But you you might respond at this point and say, well, that's happening out there. But not me. And not most people. Most people are not swift to shed blood. Let me ask you something. If I gave you uh, a device that had a red button, and at any moment you could press that red button, and it would take the life of anyone that you pleased... And nobody would find out. Nobody would know. There wouldn't be any consequences in the church or in the state or anywhere. Nobody would know that you took that person's life and you could do it. You could push that button whenever you pleased and you had that button all the time right there next to you. How many of us would be murderers? How many of us, how many people in this society would be guilty of murder? You see, One of the reasons people don't tend to commit murder is uh, they know the consequences and they've they've 
you know, weighed out the pros and cons. It's not that they're considering the law of God or the dignity of human life, but they're thinking about the consequences. And that's not, that's not love. That's not peace. That's just pragmatism. But, you know, we see lots of murders going on among people that experience poverty. I mean, what if there was a famine in, in West Bloomfield or, or in Bloomfield itself, right? Would those people be so kind and gentle and delicate? I mean, the Bible says in Deuteronomy 28 that even the most delicate during the siege, the most delicate, wealthy, ritzy, hoity-toity men and women in Israel would be eating their own babies and fighting over the placenta. Uh, you know, when, when it hits the fan, you begin to see, and who knows when things will truly hit the fan in this society. But when it does, I think maybe we won't be so shocked at Paul's assessment of human nature. Swift to shed blood. The path of destruction and of misery. There's destruction and misery in their ways. This word destruction means uh, to break, that which is broken, that which is ruined, that which is shattered to pieces. Psalm 2.9, it's the same word in the Greek Septuagint translating Psalm 2.9 when it says Jesus as king has a scepter by which he dashes the nations to pieces as a potter's vessel. And so his providential judgment brings this destruction, this self-destructive rebellion against God, broken hearts, broken dreams. More and more people today are shattered. Broken people, broken marriages, broken promises and vows, broken families, broken friendships. We live in a broken and disjointed society, broken treaties and and all of these things. This is what sin is. This is what the path to hell, when most people are on it in a society, this is what it brings. And it will not only destroy society, it will break you. The Bible says that Jesus will not break you. If you remain in your impenitence, yes, He'll dash you to pieces as a potter's vessel, but we're told that the bruised reed He will not break. That the smoking flax He will not quench. In other words, if you're convicted of your sin. If you confess your sin, He will receive you. He came to preach the Gospel, we're told, to the brokenhearted. Broken people with broken lives, broken dreams, broken societies even. Jesus Christ offers healing, forgiveness, restoration. The Good Shepherd, He restoreth my soul but we're also on a path of misery. The word means trouble, calamity, hardship, wretchedness, toil, affliction. The Scripture says that the way of the unfaithful is hard. Good sense wins favor, Proverbs says. But the way of the unfaithful, the way of the treacherous, the way of the unrepentant, the way of the unfaithful is hard. It's hard for the unfaithful. It's hard for the people that are around the unfaithful, that rub shoulders with the unfaithful. It's hard all around. And in a society where every man proclaims his own goodness, but a faithful man who can find, understand the hardness, the trouble, the misery, 
that exists on this path to hell is overwhelming. And as I said, it's not a spring. It's not a door of hope. It's the best of the best, which is a precursor to hell itself. Misery, hardness, wretchedness, toil, no peace. Why is there no peace in the world? Let's admit that, I mean, peace is breaking down all around us. Uh, Because the way of peace is not known. There's no knowledge of the way of peace. Even in a world where most nations of the world have heard the way of peace, they've heard the gospel of Jesus Christ, they've seen those beautiful feet on the mountains proclaiming to Zion, your God reigns, the gospel of peace through the blood of Jesus Christ. Many nations have heard of it. Our own nation has heard it, but they have no knowledge of it. They suppress the truth and unrighteousness. They will not have this man to rule over them. Isaiah 48, verse 18, If you had repented, if you had sought me, if you'd have come to me, you would have had peace like a river and righteousness as the waves of the sea. But as it stands, he says, there is no peace for the wicked. And you can come up with your own phony kind of peace, 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 but there is no peace. You can heal the wound lightly. You can try to heal that broken heart lightly with, with again, with, with pharmaceuticals or with self-help or, or, or who knows what it is. But ultimately, there's no peace for the wicked. There's a false peace. And deep down, Psalm 53.5 says that the wicked, who are described in Romans 3, that's one of the Psalms Paul quotes in the text, That even where there is nothing to fear, there, as our Psalter says, they are terrorized. Deep down, there's no peace. There's no peace with God. There's no peace in your soul. There's no peace in your family, your society. There's no peace in the world around you. But my friends, there is a way of peace. And you need to receive it. You need to open that. Well, the gate's open. You need to enter into that gate, into that way of peace. There's a way of peace with God. Romans 5 verse 1, Therefore, having been justified, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, through His death, through His blood shed. Ephesians 2, He Himself is our peace. You can know that all your sins are forgiven. Peace with God. Peace with yourself. You will keep Him in perfect peace whose heart is fixed on you. Isaiah 26, verse 3. Peace like a river in my soul, as the song says. You can have that peace, that knowledge that you are the Lord's, that He loves you with an everlasting love, that nothing can separate you from the love of God in Christ Jesus. You can even have peace with your circumstances. Rather than being anxious for everything, you can be anxious for nothing, but in everything, bringing your prayer and your supplication before the Lord with thanksgiving. Philippians 4, verse 6, so that the peace of God that passes all understanding would guard your heart and mind in Christ Jesus. As Psalm 112 says, that the righteous, godly person is not dominated by fear. They have peace. Verse 6, Surely He will never be shaken. 
Verse 7, he will not be afraid of evil tidings. His heart is steadfast, trusting in the Lord. His heart is established. He will not be afraid. That's the kind of peace you can have in your circumstances. Peace that doesn't go up and down with the volatility of human circumstances. And you can have peace with others. I mean, if if the Jews and the Ephesian Gentiles can get together and the middle wall of partition can be broken down and Christ can unite them and be their peace in terms of overcoming that violent disposition and hatred between the Jews and Gentiles, my friends, the Lord Jesus Christ can give us the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace in the church, in the family, even in society. Turning our swords into plowshares. Reapportioning our military budget for something that would be more prosperous for the good of mankind. Turning our spears into pruning hooks. There is a way of peace with others, a way of peace among the nations, but it only comes through the fear of God. And much could be said, the the fear of God, there are books written on the fear of God, There's so much in the Bible. You could associate the fear of God with different texts. Uh, You could associate it with virtually every aspect of the Christian life. We're not going to do that. We only have a few, another minute here. But to boil it down, the fear of God means to take God seriously. To take His presence seriously. To take His attributes seriously to take His justice and His mercy seriously, to take His covenant seriously, to take His judgment, His salvation, to take everything that's written in His book seriously, to be awakened to the seriousness of God. Yes, to believe, to repent, to reverence, to worship, to obey, to serve. And there are none of those things in hell. Hell is a place where the fear of God as we see it here the reverent trust and appreciation of God's character. It's absent from hell. People may fear the pain or whatever, but they're not fearing God as a heavenly Father, reverencing His name. There's none of that in hell. And wherever that fear of God is absent on earth, hell increasingly takes over in your life, in your family, in the church, and in society. No fear of God before our eyes. My friend, do you take God seriously? Or is God in none of your thoughts? Do you hit the pause button on God's presence? Even when He's shouting and blowing the trumpet and the alarm bells are ringing to get your attention, just like the dying thief who would not repent, He's being crucified for His own sins. And He's experiencing pain and suffering for His own sins. And the repentant thief says, under these extreme circumstances, do you not even fear God? Do you not even fear God? Will you not take Him seriously? Because if you don't fear Him now, You're on the path to a place where there will be no fear of God to restrain the evil of all the inhabitants that surround you in that vile abode for all eternity in hell. Fear Him. Kiss the Son. 
serve him with reverence. Kiss the son lest you perish in the way. Nehemiah 1.11 even says that believers are those who desire, desire to fear God. Deuteronomy repeatedly speaks of, of God's people learning to fear God. So God is lowering the bar in grace as low as it can possibly go. Do you even desire to fear God? Are you even dissatisfied with the fact that you don't take God seriously and you from the heart, because the Romans 3 person doesn't desire this, but do you desire to fear God? Nehemiah 1.11 Take hold of that verse. If you desire to fear God, then you can be taught to fear God. And how was the king of Israel, as well as the, the lowest citizen of that nation, taught to fear God? Deuteronomy 17, 19. Read that law. Read that book every day that you may learn to fear God all your days. If you desire to fear God, if you recognize something's wrong in my life, I'm broken, I need to be healed, I need to be saved, I need to be put on the narrow way that leads to life, I desire to fear God, open that Bible every day. Seek the Lord in prayer. For those who seek Him with all of their heart shall find Him. Let's pray. Lord God, pour out Your covenant mercy. Give us hearts that fear Your name. That even in the remainder of this worship service, that we would have grace in our hearts to worship you acceptably with reverence and godly fear, for our God is a consuming fire. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.